Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, I pray that you would just join with us this morning as we celebrate your love, as we express our love to you and celebrate your presence. Lord, that you may be glorified in all that we do. I pray that you would encourage those who need the encouragement. Would you strengthen those who need to be strengthened? And Father, may you correct those who need your correction. And Father, may we receive it with joy and may we receive it, Lord, with thanksgiving. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and join with us in Mark chapter 12. As we're making progress in our study in Mark, Jesus is marvelous. Jesus is marvelous. Mark 12, 1 through 12. Have you ever had a desire for revenge? Anyone want to admit to that? Maybe it's against the spouse that's sitting next to you. Is that what, that's, that's what's going on? Have you ever tried to help someone? only to have them to bite your hand afterwards or to do you wrong. Maybe a partnership that uh, you thought was going to work well and then they went behind your back and wound up destroying. I'm sure you have. And maybe you've been guilty of doing this thing yourself. There's not much worse than having someone you trust misuse or abuse you. In our passage that we've been reading, Jesus has now come into Jerusalem, whereas Dustin has shared with us, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. He's come into Jerusalem as king, and he's come to perform an inspection on the temple in Jerusalem. Not only to inspect, but also to pronounce judgment on the religious leaders. Today, Jesus continues that judgment in Mark chapter 12, 1 through 12. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around, and he dug a pit for the winepress. And he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent another, him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. In verse 7, we read that those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will then be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they received that he had told the parable against him. So they left him and went away. Father, I pray that you'd open up our minds and our hearts to hear your word this morning. 
Let it speak to us deeply. Let us be able to take a parable written 2,000 years ago for a specific people and let it transmit now 2,000 years later that we may understand it. Not only understand it, but Lord, that we would be moved to respond to your work that your Spirit has for us. Be with me. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let us know the difference between my mere opinion and your word. May your truth become very clear and relevant to our lives this morning. We pray once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has been exercising his authority over the temple. The authorities, as we have seen last week, are upset over Jesus' words and actions. They're asking questions, by who authority are you doing this? We're coming to the place here in Mark where the religious leaders are now going to confront Jesus with a series of questions seeking to turn the crowd against him. But each time Jesus leaves them more upset and more angry and just beating air. I want to share five observations about this parable. Well, if you have your Bibles, you may still want to follow with me in Mark 12. But I'm going to give you five observations real quickly about this parable. The first one is that there is a difference here between being an owner and a tenant. There's a difference between being an owner and a tenant. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug it and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. This was a business arrangement that would have been very familiar to those that Jesus was speaking to. Just like today, land was in the hands of a few wealthy people. They would then lease the land out to tenants who would work the field for a previously agreed portion of the crops. That's typically what the price would be. It's important to note that even though it was the tenants who labored over the vineyard and nursed it to maturity, it still belonged to the land owner. The tenants could have been small businessmen who would then hire day laborers, or it could have been a, a pool of workers who pulled together to work the land. In any case, it belonged to the one who owned it. The second observation is that both the owners and the tenants were justified in asking and wanting their portion of the crop. We see in verse 1 that the owner put some resources into his vineyard. He had planted it. He had put a fence around it. He had dug out a pit in order to put in a press to press the grapes into wine. He entered into a contract with those tenants to work it and to bring it to maturity. In verse 2, Jesus tells us that the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. It was now time for him to collect the fruit of his rewards, pun intended. It was time for him to get what was due him. Now, the tenants did work the field for agreed-upon portion of the crops we had said before. It would normally take around four to five years for that crop to get to maturity. So you can imagine, here are these men, and they are working in that field day in, day out, probably 12-plus hours a day. They would be working in the basking sun with the wind beating upon them. They would be toiling the ground. They would be dealing with all the things that need to be done. You can almost imagine... And understand how they get to the point where they felt like, you know what, we deserve more. You know that because you may have the same attitude sometimes at work. Yeah, he may own the business, but I'm the one who does all the things. I'm the one who does all the work. That's something normally that we would have. It was backbreaking work. Not only that, the owner was absent during this time. You can imagine that they would begin to think it was more theirs and they deserved. They began to develop an attitude that they were deserving of more, and they wanted more, so they would take more. 
even if it meant taking it by force. The third point I would like you to see is number three, bringing your attention here as we go. In verse three, we're going to see that the tenants escalate the violence with each new representative. The tenants escalate the violence with each new representative. In Mark's account, we see an escalation of violence and hardness of heart. The first one, they took him and beat him and sent him on his way empty-handed. The second one, they beat him on the head and treated him shamefully, telling us they didn't kill him, but they made his life more terrible and they shamed him in front of everyone. Verse 5, it says we sent another and they killed him. Some they would beat and some they would kill. The owner is just seeking what's due him. He's seeking just to to find the bargain, the partnership. He had given them work to do. He had given them a crop to take care of and something that would sustain their families. So not yet wanting to do anything worse, he continues to send his representatives to collect, but to no avail. The tenants are shown to be wicked with no respect and no honor. Desperation, the owner in verse 6, had one last representative, his beloved son. And he sent him to them, saying, they will now respect my son. This, in this case, this owner is not thinking very clearly, but he says, maybe they will respect my son. He had one last move to try and resolve and seek reconciliation peacefully to solve the problem. And he thought that they might finally listen to reason and do the right thing. The fourth observation that I want to point out is the tenants expose their greedy and covetous heart. In the end, there was nothing that this owner could do. For their words revealed their greedy and covetousness heart. And now we find that their actions prove how wicked they are. When they said, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. See, they come to desire what it is they worked at. This is just an absentee owner. This, this is ours. We've worked it. We've worked hard. We've labored over this. We've matured this. We want this. These wicked men then went out and killed the man's son and threw him, cast him out of the vineyard. Which brings us to the fifth observation as we read there. Is the owner here is justified. He is justified in punishing the tenants and giving it away to others. For in verse 9, Jesus asks and answers his own question. He usually doesn't do that, but in this case he does. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? You could almost imagine, what would you do in this case? What would be your solution? Should they have unionized? Should we negotiate? Should there be a labor contract? Should we send in the police, the military, the National Guard? What should we do here to find reconciliation? Well, Jesus answers exactly what's to be done in this case, in that time and place. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Justice must prevail. And I could imagine that the religious leaders hearing this would have agreed with Jesus in this point. Finally, there's an agreement. They probably listening to this story were thinking about the wicked tenants here, these men killing the representatives. They would have been outraged. Most of them probably were in this type of thing where they own land and they would lease it out to different people. They, They were getting wealthy by the work of other people. And so their, their energies and their anger would have been held for those tenants. They said, yes, they must be destroyed. He waited too long. 
You and I might, as we read this, say, why does he continue to send people to them? I mean, how many people need to be beaten, killed for this guy to get the answer? And then why? Was he, not, was he foolish to send his only son? Why did he not think they would kill him too? Well, I think this better parable demonstrates the owner in several ways. Three of them, actually. This parable demonstrates the owner's patience. He doesn't destroy the wicked tenants right away but he gives them several chances to respond righteously and correctly. He gives them several opportunities to honor their agreement. It also demonstrates the owner's personality. He's willing to send his beloved son to bring reconciliation. See, his goal at first is not to destroy these men, even as he has every right to do so, but he's still seeking to make the partnership work. He's trying to seek a, a peaceful reconciliation, so he sends his son, which then demonstrates the owner's justice, his, his personality, where he finally demands justice and replaces the tenants. This is a parable that many of us know. It's a, an allegory, meaning that the characters and the settings represent that there's several things here that we need to make the connection. Now, the goal when it comes to a parable that's an allegory is, is you assign ownership to those who it belongs to, but don't go much further than that. So what we see here there that the owner is God. He's the, the one who's built. He's the one who owns. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. The servants are the prophets of Israel that have been sent for years to Israel while the Son is Jesus. That's very clear. Many of you have heard this parable. You've heard uh, what it means in the allegory, but if it's not, here's something for you to learn this morning. Pastor R.T. France writes that this parable is actually a pictorial account of God's dealing with Israel through the prophets, culminating in the sinning of His only Son, who was eventually rejected and killed. This parable is a parable of judgment against the leaders of Israel. Jesus taught this parable to confront the chief priests and the elders and reveal their hypocritical character. In essence, in combination with Dustin's message of last week, Jesus is telling the, the, the religious leaders that they really have no authority to question him, for he is the son of the owner. See, there's five truths we need to understand. See, Jesus is the one that's coming to Israel. And he says, you need to understand something here that God is the owner. Here's five truths. Number one is Israel was planted by God. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Isaiah. This imagery here is done on purpose. Jesus here is using the imagery of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to look at the first two verses. And then verse 7. The prophet writing through the Holy Spirit, says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked it for it to yield grapes. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? But he yielded wild grapes. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Here we see the example or the telling of the interpretation of what the vineyard is. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. Behold, he saw nothing but bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Hundreds of years before this event, God was calling out for vengeance for Israel had 
not fulfilled its bargain with God. God refers to Israel as a vineyard in Jeremiah when he says, I planted you as a choice vine. In Psalms 80, it says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and you filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. What you and I need to understand is that Israel was planted by God. It's his vineyard. Israel was planted by God for a purpose. He had a desire. It was to bear fruit. In Psalms it says, do you not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love? But you rebelled by the sea. But yet God saved Israel for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Jeremiah tells us that God brought Israel together. He created them that they might be for him a people, a name, a praise and a glory. But he says they would not listen. So Israel is God's vineyard planted for a purpose. The third truth that we see is that Israel expressed their disrespect for God and his servants just as these tenants did. In Acts chapter 7, Peter says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's saying, you are just like these tenants. You have killed those representatives of God. He expected something from you. There was a grand bargain. You were to mediate. You were to be a representative of God, but yet you failed to do so. Just as God sent representatives like the owner in the parable, they were killed. They were treated shamefully. In 1 Kings, the writer describes how Queen Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord. In Matthew 23, Jesus reminds them how the fathers of the religious leaders treated the prophet Zechariah, whom they murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. They threw the prophet Jeremiah into a pit, and tradition records that they sawed Isaiah into two. So you can see the parable, the allegory as it works itself out. Israel is the wicked tenants, planted by God for a specific purpose. Mediate my kingdom. Be my representatives. I expect fruit from you. But when it came time to receive the fruit, they denied him. And each time God would send a prophet to cry out, he'd send a priest who would, or a king to be a godly leader, they would kill them, they would ignore them, they would treat him shamefully. Number four, God was patient with Israel. In Psalms 130, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. God was just and righteous in holding back, even though they continued to disrespect him, to rebel against him, to kill his people. God continually showed them patience. But number five, what's so important is God sent His only beloved Son to make reconciliation. Paul tells us in Galatians, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He sent His Son to redeem, to make reconciliation with Israel, with the Jews. But yet, as you and I know, it didn't go too well. As we see the story here, they continually reject Him. 
according to God's plan, they rejected Jesus. This is what is meant in verse 10 of Mark chapter 12, if you still have it there, when he says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here is quoting Psalms 118, 22-23, which by this time, when Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, had become a messianic psalm. In other words, it was a psalm that even the religious leaders understood and expected that it was speaking of the Messiah, but yet their mind still could not comprehend what they were doing. This is a psalm that teaches about the Messiah. It teaches that he would be rejected, but yet he would become a a beautiful, marvelous cornerstone. Well, you and I see very quickly in this parable, as he's teaching them this parable, sharing with them really the history of Israel, the relationship between God and Israel, the response of the religious leaders is anything but positive. In verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest Jesus. But again, they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was stepping on their toes, as we used to use the old Baptist term. He was getting right into their safe space. He was letting them know exactly what the problem was. So they left him, and they went away. And as we saw from our scripture reading, their desire was to kill Jesus. They were rejecting him. Just as in the parable, just as their forefathers had done, They were rejecting not only the prophets and the servants of God, but the very Son of God. And this is what I want you to get here, is that the rejection of Jesus might come from the hearts of the religious, the political, and the military leaders. But ultimately, the rejection of Jesus was God's plan. The rejection of Jesus was not something that took God or Jesus by surprise. In one great sermon, the Apostle Peter preaches this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered against the Messiah, your anointed one, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And see, this is what's important for us to understand. You and I understand that Israel failed to do what it was that God had called them to do. Just as these wicked tenants failed to respond or to do what their agreement was, so did Israel. But let me tell you, as we see this, this rejection of Jesus is marvelous. You and I, when we read this, might say, those wicked tenants, those wicked Israelites, those wicked scribes, and those religious leaders... They deserve whatever punishment they get. And I would agree. However, in Psalms, just as Jesus says here, is the builders have rejected the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, but it says it is marvelous in our eyes. Let me ask you, how can the rejection of Jesus by the very people that he has created, how can that be marvelous? How can that be wonderful? I would share you very quickly. 
The rejection of Jesus is marvelous because it opened the door for the Gentiles, for you and I to become the sons and daughters of God. What did the owners do in the parable? He took it away from the tenants and he gave it to others who would bear fruit. In the same way, we see that God is doing the same thing with the gospel. Romans 11.11, Paul says, So I ask, did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. In other words, did Jesus allow them to stumble just to stumble? Did he decree it just so they could stumble? But he says, rather, it's through their trespass, through the rejection of Jesus Christ, salvation has come to Gentiles, to you and I, so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, Israel had rejected Jesus. They had rejected God for most of their time. They were rebellious almost from the beginning when they were taken out of Egypt. And God was patient, but yet God had another plan. By now, you can see the parallels between this parable and God's dealing with Israel and His dealing with you and I as His church. You and I are just as they were. We were disobedient. We were rebellious children seeking to take what is not ours, desiring the death of God. And let me say, you say, why would you say that? But I would say, yes, you and I desired the death of God before we came to Him. We'd say there is no God. And you said, oh, I always believed there was God, even before I was saved. But yet, you weren't seeking Him in the way in which you wanted to submit to Him, that you wanted to love Him and know Him. No, you seek to kill Him. That's why we create other gods before Him. That's why we make other idols instead of Him. Romans tells us that we're without excuse, for we have all done so. We are all guilty of doing this. We desire within our hearts the death of God. Each and every time we desire to do our thing and we disregard the promises of God. Now in the same way that God called out Israel, He has called out a new people and He has established the church. In Matthew 21, in His writing, in His redemption of this verse, of this passage, he tells us, Jesus tells religious leaders that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people reproducing its fruits. So just as the, the owner said, I'm taking away from these wicked tenants, I'm going to give it to someone else. God says, Israel, you have failed. You have stumbled. I am taking away your responsibility and I'm going to give it to a new people who will produce the fruits that I've requested. You see, at this time, it is not Israel that is to mediate or represent God, but it's the church. Does that mean I'm anti-Israel? In no way, and I don't want to get into that political discussion. But it's not Israel, it's not the Jews who stand as God's mediators and God's representatives and God's ambassadors. That does not mean, by the way, that Jews cannot be saved. Praise God, I was just speaking to the Messianic Jews that were here yesterday celebrating Christ. They take the Torah out and they read the law. And then he points how it points to Christ. And they praise God, for they know who their Messiah is. But yet it's to the church is the manifold wisdom of God given. So you and I now have a responsibility. God has a vineyard that he has planted. And you and I are to nurture it, to work it, and to produce fruits. In his first letter, Peter writes to the church. He says, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now what's interesting about that is the same verbiage that's used when God called out Israel. It's now used for the church. He says, I have done this that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just as Israel was called out to glorify God, you and I are to do the same thing as well. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I too were created and called out by God. For His glory. Amen? Okay? Some of you may believe it. Some of you might be excited about it. But let me share with you, God has a purpose as He calls us out. We are His workmanship, created by Christ Jesus for good works that He has called us to do beforehand. And like Israel, we were not called out due to any merit of our own or because of any potential that you and I might have but only because of His mercy. As Romans 5.8, many of you know this verse tells us, God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God has planted us as the church. God has a purpose for us. God expects us to accomplish that purpose. There will be a time where He'll come and He'll say, now give me the fruits of my vineyard. In doing this and calling us out, in planning us, and calling us out, God demonstrates several things. He demonstrates His patience. You and I ought to be thankful for this. He doesn't destroy the wicked right away, but He gives them several chances to respond righteously. Second Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, but He's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should meet to repentance. He has given us a creation mandate from the beginning of time. Subdue the earth, have dominion. Be my mediators, be my representative. But the world has failed, but yet He's doing a new work. And He's patient towards us. He's personal in which He's very involved. Speaking to someone earlier this week, they were talking about their boyfriend and some other people that they know that take that deistic view of God. And well, yes, there is a God, but the world, He created everything, and like a clock, He winds it up, and He's just setting back, and He's watching the world just tick away, and He never gets involved. Yeah, like the owner, we might think God is absent, but He's not. He's involved in the very work each and every day. John tells us that God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have every eternal life. For God not, not sent His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. We have an owner, we have a God who's personally involved in our lives and sending His only Son to speak to us so we may have His Word, who prays for us, who's our advocate, who intercedes for us. But there's also a penalty. You see, for God demands justice from the wicked and the rewards the faithful. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, appointed a man once died, and after this, the judgment. We know this portion of Scripture. But it goes on to say, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many, 
He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So there is a day of judgment for those that have rejected, that are rebellious toward Christ, but there's also a day of great reward and a blessing those that have been faithful in tending His vineyard. But here's the other great news. The fact that Jesus has been rejected is marvelous. Why? Because it's made salvation possible for you and I. Hence why our prayer is be reconciled with God. Be reconciled with God. But yet there's still great news. Is that God is not done with Israel. God will one day bring them back. Because I don't want you to leave the fact and think that Israel is now done. Because Paul tells us in Romans, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. There's a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So just as the time that God waited till the fullness of time to bring Christ in, there's going to be a time when the fullness of all of those of us that have been brought in to, to God's kingdom, that there will be a time, he says, that all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He will clear it out and he will bring them in. So here's my encouragement. Here's my challenge. Until that final day of Christ's coming, till that day when he finally appears, let us marvel that this one who was rejected is now our king. Amen? It is marvelous that he has been rejected. At first blush, that's very hard to say. And it's very hard to understand. But without this rejection, you and I would be outside the hope and the covenant. Let us give glory to the one who is rejected so that we might be accepted in him. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that as we take a moment to pause, to consider, and to pray and to respond. Father, do we marvel at your rejection? Lord, do we see what it took for us to become sons and daughters? If there's any here, Lord, that do not know you as Savior, Lord, who have not accepted that wonderful gift of salvation, may they hear this message and may their hearts be stricken. Lord, do your work and make us to see how wonderful it is to be your child. It's not of any merit of our own. It's not of any potential of our own. But Lord, you have planted us. You have called us. You've accepted us. And Lord, may we do the work that you've created us to do. And may we do it with thanksgiving. And Lord, with wonderful love towards you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.